Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Una Bergman. Una is a research fellow at the Alexandria Institute at the University of Helsinki. Una is a historian who focuses in her work on the disintegration of the Soviet Union, Baltic states, collective memory, and the post-Cold War transitions in the Baltic region. Una has a forthcoming book titled Politics of Uncertainty, the US, the Baltic Question, and the Collapse of the Soviet Union that examines the interplay between international and domestic dynamics in the Soviet disintegration process. The book investigates relations between the US government, Baltic independence movements, and Moscow during the perestroika years, approximately 1985 to 1991, where significant political and economic reforms took place in the then Soviet Union. The book interestingly argues that Washington and Washington's European allies move from a more cautious approach to the Baltic states' claims for independence to fully embracing their independence and the reality of a weakening USSR was driven much more by uncertainty, domestic pressures and last-minute decisions than by strategic calculations and long-term strategy, which is a really fascinating argument and one that we're going to look at as well as talk about implications for the war in Ukraine. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Una. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So I gave a bit of an introduction to your book. This is a really in-depth, comprehensive piece of work. So what motivated you to dive into this particular research and write this book? There are so many things to think about and write about when we think about the collapse of the Soviet Union and when we think about the end of the Cold War. And there are already, obviously, many great books written about these two processes, but they all have been, well, most of them, not all of them, but most of them have been written from a certain perspective, from the perspective of these key powerful players in the international politics or in the Soviet domestic politics. So when we think about the end of the Cold War, we think about the negotiations on German unification. Or when we think about the collapse of the Soviet Union, we think about, well, what Moscow did, what Gorbachev did, and the center-focused perspective. But if we shift a little bit the focus, we see completely new things and new stories. And I think it's very useful to look at these processes from the perspective of those actors at the time who were actively involved in collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, but who were not in the top positions of these international or Soviet domestic power hierarchies. And so when we look at the collapse and the the end of the Cold War, kind of from the margins, from the perspective of the marginalized actors, then we see a completely new things and important perspectives that tell us a lot about perestroika and about the end of the Cold War. For example, if we think about Mikhail Gorbachev, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, then the question of his relations with the Baltic republics, it's not just a story about the relations between the center and periphery. It is also a story about a deep tension at the heart of perestroika project, the tension between the democratization and the preservation of the empire. That was the question. That was the Baltic question for Gorbachev, whether to go to the end of this idea of democratization and to respect the will of the people and to let them go, or to stop the democratization, use force and somehow stop this Baltic drive for independence and to preserve the Soviet state. 
And the same thing, if we look at the end of the Cold War, again, the Baltic story shows us a contradiction at this end of the Cold War policies, where on one hand, there are these attempts and these ideas about reuniting Europe, remaking Europe, putting in place a new European order. But at the same time, this is done by reproducing the old hierarchies of importance in which the Western European interests, such as German unification, are understood as being more important than the interests of Eastern European states and smaller countries. Mm-hmm. That's something that's so interesting about your project and your research is that it really gives agency back to the Baltic states. And I guess when we're looking at that period of the breakdown of the Soviet Union, there can be a tendency to kind of consider the United States as having a lot of agency, the sort of central governance of the Soviet Union as having a lot of agency, but forgetting about the agency of other countries that were involved. So why is it inaccurate to see that period around the breakdown of the Soviet Union as primarily an interplay between those, for want of a better word, great powers? That's one of the main arguments of the book is that at the time of the historical change, such as the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union or just the transformation of international uh, relations that Perestroika brought, at the time of this deep historical change, there is a disruption of existing power structures and the existing power structures in which the big powers are used to operate. And this brings uncertainty to the uh, politics of the big powers, and it limits their agency, because they are somehow, they have lost these familiar environments uh, in which they know how to operate, and they know how to deal with the other actors. And so at the same time, this disruption of these power structures, it also, these power structures have marginalized other actors who are not understood as the big powers. And so for them, this is a, a window of opportunity because uh, through the, the remaking of, let's say, international order, they are trying to kind of change their position in these, well, international or domestic power relations. And so we we really see this, for example, with, with the Bush administration, George Bush Sr., and with American foreign policy in general at the time, this unexpected rise of this uh, reformer leader in the Soviet Union, it really left Americans in like uncharted waters. They were really struggling to ascribe meaning to Gorbachev's actions. They were struggling to untangle all this complexity of the Soviet internal struggles. Bush at the time, he's often asked, who is the enemy? And that for him, the answer is that the enemy now in the late 80s, early 90s, the enemy is the uncertainty. And it was also well explained by Brent Scottcroft, who was his national security advisor, who wrote this very interesting report in spring 1991, in which he wrote that, well, there is this ongoing power struggle in the Soviet Union between those who support the reforms and the conservative forces. And if that struggle ended tomorrow, whether with the victory of the reformers or the victory of the conservatives, we would at least know with what kind of Soviet Union we are dealing with. But as long as the struggle is ongoing, and it might be ongoing for a long time, we just don't know with what kind of country we we are dealing. And that obviously is a problem for American foreign policy. And we see how this uncertainty, and George Bush is a very, George Bush Sr. is a very careful policymaker. And this uncertainty really makes the United States to be very cautious 
when it comes to Eastern European revolutions in 1989 or when it comes to the collapse of the Soviet Union. He is very careful. At the same time, we also see that there are priorities, that this same carefulness is not applied to German unification, that, again, there are these hierarchies of importance. German unification is important enough for the American foreign policy to really push Gorbachev to accept German unification on on Western terms. But when it comes to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union itself, then the Americans are very prudent, very careful how to deal with these very complicated processes. So I don't think that in academia there is still this idea that, well, probably in some parts of it, that Americans somehow exploited the Soviet disintegration to actively expand its influence. But it is still a perception like in larger public. But if you look how it really happened at the time wasn't really the case. And if we think from the other side of the story about the the Soviet Union and the uncertainty, then again, we see how the democratization, so all the routines and practices of these center-peripheral relations in the Soviet Union, they were established for an authoritarian framework and they were shaped according to this imperial paradigm in which Moscow had the final say over republic's affairs. But when this democratization effect of perestroika, it completely changed these dynamics. And then the central power and Mikhail Gorbachev, they had to face something that they had not seen before, this increasingly pluralistic and democratic periphery. And so Gorbachev and his entourage, they had to adapt to this new situation and they didn't have the expertise, they didn't have the understanding of how to deal with this new situation. And it led to a confusion and a lot of hesitation in Moscow at the time. And then for the Baltic countries, so first the Baltic independence movements, and then the Baltic governments, the pro-independent governments, we see how they, in a very focused way, they really slowly, step by step, they push the limits of possible. So they, they ask for economic autonomy, They proclaim the local languages as the official languages of the republics. They ask for political autonomy. They start to ask for independence. They want to be received by American ambassador in Moscow. They want them to be received by George Bush in the White House. And slowly, step by step, they they advance their agenda. They try to push it on the international agenda. They want to push the Baltic question on the international agenda. They want to gain this visibility, which they hope then will bring also uh, the independence. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And this might seem an obvious question, but those Baltic states were fighting very hard for their independence and really trying to put that independence on the international agenda, as you mentioned. So why was it so important to the Baltic states at the time to gain independence and ultimately then to get closer to the European Union and NATO? This is a very good question. And I think Mikhail Gorbachev struggled to to find the answer to this question because there was also a certain way how the Baltic countries were perceived in the Soviet Union and how Gorbachev perceived them. We have these Soviet internal ethnic hierarchies in which the, the Russian elder brother is at the top of these these hierarchies. And then Central Asian republics are perceived as these regions that need civilization and modernization. And these are ways how to justify these imperial settings. And then the Baltic countries, they are rather high up in these internal ethnic hierarchies 
in the Russian perception, well, in the Soviet perception, the Soviet rule is legitimized by the Soviet victory in the Second World War. At the same time, the Baltic countries are perceived as the most Western of the Soviet republics, the richest one, the most European ones. And so Gorbachev, and in the perception of many people in Moscow, life is good in the Baltic countries, or at least it's better than other parts of the Soviet Union. And so then why would they want to be independent? And this is a question that Gorbachev asks, where would they go if they proclaim independence? How did, could they live without us? But Gorbachev really misperceives the mood at the time in the Baltic countries. What looked like a life which is probably not very good, but at least better than in the rest of the Soviet Union, these societies were actually societies that were deeply troubled by... First, they were troubled by the problems that the whole Soviet Union was facing, economic crisis. The traumatic experience of the Soviet version of modernity, which is imposed upon them, the effects that this Soviet version of modernity had on environment in the Baltic countries, like everywhere in the Soviet Union, this contradictory uh, nationality policy, which again was something challenging for all the nationalities in the Soviet Union, this ethnic hierarchies in, in which the, there was a clear understanding that Russians are the first among the, the equal, and even those who then are supposed to be equal are not actually equal. So all these problems, the Baltic countries were experiencing the same problems as people everywhere in the Soviet Union, but there were then two other factors. Everybody in the Soviet Union had to struggle with these traumatic memories of Stalin's repressions. But in the Baltic countries, there were also the memories of the lost independence. The Baltic countries were independent between 1918 and 1940. So there was in living memory an experience which was different than the Soviet experience. There was a shorter or longer experience in those 20 years uh, with democracy. So there was a memory of an existing alternative. And so this meant that there was in living memory and experience of uh, statehood, there was a shorter or longer experience of democracy. So that was one of the game-changing uh, elements in the Baltic case. The other one was, and that was the case for Estonia and Latvia, but not really for Lithuania, was the influx of Russian-speaking migrants from other republics, mostly Russians, but in some cases also Ukrainians and Belarusians, people who arrived uh, in Estonia and Latvia after 1945. So at the end of the Soviet period, Latvians would constitute 52% of the inhabitants of Latvia. And in Estonian case, it was a bit more than 60%. And that is a rather exceptional situation in the Soviet Union because... Well, you see something very similar and even more dramatic in Kazakhstan. And the problem with, with this migration was how massive this migration was. But deep down at the heart of this migration problem, it was not just the migration as such that could be a, an issue that could be uh, solved. But the problem was that people who arrived in Estonia and Latvia, they were not encouraged by the Soviet state to learn the local languages or to integrate themselves in Latvian or Estonian societies. It was the other way around. They were encouraged by the whole uh, Soviet setting to claim the privileges that Russians or Russian speakers had in the Soviet Union. And so this then on top of all the other problems, economic crisis, envir environmental problems, experience with Soviet modernity, mem memories of the repressions, memories of the independence, 
and the contradictory nationality policy in general, all of this created the sense in the Baltic countries that the existence of this collective self understood as Estonian, Latvian, Lithuanian nations, that the existence of this collective self or the continuity of this collective self, it's possible only if independence comes that this imperial bond with Moscow has to be cut as soon as possible. As one of my, my Estonian colleagues, Karel Piramais, he wrote, it was the time of existential politics in the perception of the Baltic societies and the Baltic political elites, that this is a time of very crucial decisions, one on, once in a lifetime opportunity to get the Baltic countries out of the, the Soviet Union, and so in this context, Europe has a special meaning, not just the European institutions, the European community, but idea of Europe as such. There was the urge in the context of cutting this imperial uh, relations with Moscow, there was this urge to reaffirm other identity than the Soviet identity, to claim this European identity, this European heritage, which is part of Baltic history and Baltic cultures, to say we are not just Soviet, we are something else, and we have been something else, and we have these historical ties with the, the Baltic Sea region and Germany and Europe in general and European culture. To some extent, this is also part of a perestroika process, because the whole perestroika is, to some extent, a Soviet attempt, Gorbachev's attempt, the attempt of Soviet liberals, like Gorbachev's circle, to reshape Soviet identity, to also claim Soviet links with, with Europe. But in the Baltic case, this is even, uh, there is an urgency to claim that uh, we uh, Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, we are part of Europe, and thus we are not part of Soviet Union. And so joining European Union then becomes a logical choice, and it's also a logical choice because of the regional dynamics. At the end of the Cold War, Finland and Sweden are not members of European Union, but they become, in 1995, they decide to join European Union, and around the same time, other neighbors of the Baltic countries, Poland, the Czech Republic, and, and so on and so forth, they apply for European mem membership in European Union and NATO membership. And for the Baltic countries, then, on one hand, there is a choice of whether to be left out of these regional dynamics or to follow them. And on the other hand, joining NATO to some extent is perceived as continuation of this independence struggle by other means, because it's the same process, it's the idea of getting out of the Russian zone of influence. And well, joining NATO is one way how to put a definite end of this existence in the Russian zone of influence. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, obviously, the current situation is very different and has its own dynamics, but I can hear echoes of tensions that you're talking about as part of this supposedly historical phenomenon from 30 years ago or more. And yet there seem to be echoes of that in what's unfolding currently. So I'm thinking about things like the tension between, you know, striving for democratization and then preserving empire or this way of sometimes considering dynamics in the region as really being about the interaction between so-called great powers or, you know, bigger powers and forgetting about the agency of actual populations and, and states fighting the battles on the ground, so to speak. How in that light are you reflecting on the current war in Ukraine 
and Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February this year, do you see that as in some ways driven by some of these sort of historical dynamics and tensions? Yeah, definitely. I think on one hand, the main problem is Moscow's inability or unwillingness to accept that these countries who gained independence in 1991, these are independent sovereign states who have rights to make choices about their foreign policy. They can't accept this in the case of Ukraine. They have somehow accepted this in the case of the Baltic countries, probably because the Baltic countries are smaller, probably because the Baltic countries don't have the same place in the Russian imperial imagination that Ukraine has. The other problem that that we can see is this long, unfortunate tradition in the West to see uh, Central and Eastern Europe and the Baltic countries as these lands in between between Berlin and Moscow or between Moscow and Washington as this region in Europe which has to be somehow divided in zones of influence. This actually implicit acceptance that it is correct to assume that Russia has some sort of special interest in this region. And this is obviously very harmful, not just for the region, but for the whole idea of some sort of international system. If we decide that we accept that there is a region or there are regions in the world with limited sovereignty, states which are independent, but then at the end of the day, they can't make decisions about their own foreign policy and their allegiances, well, then, then we have a very unjust international system. And that has consequences beyond uh, Eastern Central Europe and the Baltic countries. I see also the the very problematic situation in which people who strive to be anti-imperialist, but they see American imperialism as the only imperialism that matters, which is a very American-centric perception of the world. And then at the end of the day, the, the mistake that that many people made believing that Kyiv will be taken in, in three days That is, again, because first, the lack of knowledge about Ukraine and also the lack of understanding that Ukraine is a country. There are people who live there. They make their own choices and they are willing to defend those choices. And, well, hopefully that we will learn that we have, well, we will have to study Russia to understand what is happening in Russia. But it is equally important to study well, Central Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Baltic countries, because the dynamics in Europe are shaped not just by Russia or by Russia and the United States or by Russia and Western European countries. Dynamics in Europe in long term will also be shaped by these countries like Ukraine, like the Baltic countries, like other countries. So we've seen since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, have been some of the strongest supporters in terms of weapons and other aid that has been given to Ukraine. I believe you're originally from Latvia. Yes. So did that very fierce almost support for Ukraine from Baltic countries surprise you or is that something that you would have expected given the history that you've outlined? The governmental response didn't really uh, surprise me very much. I would expect uh, the governments of the Baltic countries to strongly support Ukraine uh, in every way possible. And it is in line in our foreign policy and the historical experience of, of the Baltic countries. 
I was positively surprised by the response on the societal level. So the governmental response is also very much driven by societal demand. But these societies, they are not just demanding action from the governments. There is really a very impressive grassroots organization to help Ukraine, to help the refugees, but also to help Ukrainians in Ukraine, to help Ukrainian armed forces. But it's also understandable in the sense that I think everybody in the Baltic countries understands that it could be us if something had gone a bit differently in the 90s. So if the NATO membership option was not possible for us, if the mood had been a bit different in Washington at that time or in the European capitals, or even domestically, if something had happened a bit differently in one of the elections at the time, there were forces who were much more pro-Russian than the mainstream who were also participating in, in, in the elections. So if something had happened a bit differently in the 90s, and if the NATO membership had not been an option, and the European Union membership, if that hadn't been an option for the Baltic countries, in that case, we would face the same choice as Ukrainians do now, whether to live in the Russian zone of influence. And living in Russian zone of influence, I think that there is also some sort of a misunderstanding in the West about, well, what's the big deal? Like you, you have to live somewhere, American or Russian zone of influence, who cares? But it is a life in the zone of influence of Putin's regime. It means that the politics, the societal values, the econ economy, the way how we treat the press, how we treat the LGBT community, how we respond to human rights and, and so on and so forth, that all then is shaped by the preferences to some extent of this regime, which becomes more and more and more problematic in the dealings with their own citizens. Then there would be a choice between whether living in the influence of Putin's regime, because that's it, what it is, or then uh, facing something what Ukraine is facing now, a war of, of aggression. And I think that this understanding that we could be in this position, that is also the driving force behind the societal mobilization, also the governmental mobilization. From your perspective, I mean, obviously the, the Baltic states are different to Ukraine and they are part of NATO. But do you think that there is a real possibility that there could be a military clash between Russia and the Baltic states? It's a very interesting question about which I have thought a lot about and my answers have changed over time. But if we think about the possible conflict between Russia and the Baltic countries, there are basically three options how it could happen. One option would be that Russia would just decide that they want to have the Baltic countries and invade the Baltic countries, risking a major war with NATO. The other possibility would be that Russia somehow decided to test NATO in the Baltic countries to see if Article 5 really works. And then if it, for some reason something happens, it doesn't, that would be the end of NATO alliance. And the third option would be that war would come to the Baltic countries if there was a major war between Russia and NATO for another reason, not because of the Baltic countries. If I look at all these three options... I don't really see in a foreseeable future that any of them is likely to happen. The major war, for instance, for, because of some sort of escalation, well, there is such a possibility always. Russia being so interested in the Baltic countries that just because of the Baltic countries, it would risk a major war uh, with NATO. I don't really believe this. I think Russia's influence in the Baltic countries and their attempts to assert this influence in the Baltic countries 
have been fading and decreasing since basically the arrival of Putin. So in long term, I don't think the Baltic countries are that important for Russia. The case in which Russia would be willing to test NATO to somehow attack the Baltic countries, not because of them, but because of NATO, to test NATO, that possibility actually seemed to me more likely before the current Russian war in Ukraine. Because I think that, well, this is also a question of the rationality of Russian decision-making. If there is a rationality in Russian decision-making, they should be able to learn their lesson from the current war they are waging in Ukraine about Western resolve, but also about the limits of their own capacities, which they should be able to see in what is happening in Ukraine. But that's the eternal question. Is this regime rational? Are they making the decisions on rational basis? Or is there is an ideological component which kind of blurries their vision of things? There is also a possibility that they make these decisions rationally, but that there is a, some sort of a deep problem with the information that they have and that is provided to Putin or other decision makers. So there are all these open questions which we don't really know. But I think there is also, I think, what we see, especially recently, but since the beginning of the war, this performative insanity in Russian public announcements, different actors, but also officials outperforming each other in making more and more unbelievable and some sort of an unhinged statements about, well, denazification we had back in spring, but now mm -hmm. the idea that Russia is fighting Satanists and really unbelievable things. And so to me, this seems as some sort of like a performative, intentional action also for domestic consumption, but also with the idea to inflict fear on Western societies. Because the, if there is this image of Russia, which is completely rational, and that plays quite well with all the orientalization and stereotypes that we have in the West about Russia. And so if this is the way how Russia is perceived, obviously the Western societies become more and more fearful that, well, they could just at some point lose their minds completely and drop the nuclear bomb. But I think we don't really have to play like into that. We should judge Russia's actions by what it is doing and not by what they are saying, both when they are promising good things, but also when they are making these unbelievable statements. And we should look at what's happening on the ground. And what, what we recently saw on the ground, that there is a rationality. They withdrew from Kherson because that was what was, well, they had reached their limits of, of the, what they were able to do uh, in, in holding the city. So I think we have reasons to hope that they will learn a lesson from what they have done in Ukraine. But when I say learning the lesson, I mean it in the sense that it will limit their willingness to wage aggressive wars. And this is also, it has to be the aim of when we think about this war, this has to be the outcome. Russia has to understand that waging these aggressive wars against their neighbors has very, very serious consequences for Russia. That's right. You would hope that, you know, a military venture ending in absolute military failure would send a message that it's not a successful idea. Maybe I'll just finally ask you when your book is going to be released and how listeners can find it if they want to find out more. The book should be out in either February or March, and it's published by uh, Oxford University Press. So you will be able to easily find it on, on their website. 
Thanks, Una. I love the way that you break down the history and the dynamics and the tensions and put it all into such a clear frame that also really helps me to understand the current dynamics and the current situation on the ground. So I appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening and thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme.